In Acts chapter 3, we find the effects of the resurrection. And it's a joy to gather as the Lord's people, obviously, to celebrate something as important as the resurrection from the dead. But it's already been mentioned this morning, we dare not think of the resurrection as merely part of the theology of the gospel that we must believe in order to be saved. Sorry about that. I don't know. I'm all tangled up here from sitting down. We can't think of the the theology of the gospel as just something we have to believe, as something on the checklist, you know, death, burial, resurrection, and I'm glad Brother Chuck pointed this out, uh, the, the, the community seeing Jesus Christ. That's part of the resurrection. It shows that he was really alive. He was seen. It's not just one of a number of facts. In the resurrection of the dead for the believer has profound implications for our lives every single day. It's at the heart of the life of a Christian. And as Brother Chuck pointed out, it's the centerpiece of New Testament gospel proclamation, the resurrection. And the story that we read here in Acts 3 and 4 helps us to see this. It takes place not long after Peter preaches the good news of the resurrection. That is his central focus. On the day of Pentecost, when God pours out his spirit, when the Lord pours out his spirit as he promised on his people, here we find a man in this story whose life is completely changed by the power of the risen Jesus. And this change continued to be the best thing that ever happened to him every day of his life after that. So I want to begin reading here in verse 1 of Acts chapter 3. Luke writes, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, what exactly did just happen to him? I think this may be one of those stories that we've heard so often, it fails to produce in us any of the amazement that the Jewish people looking on might have felt as they watched this man standing and walking and leaping with Peter and John, that guy that they had seen day after day as they had entered the temple at the ninth hour for the afternoon prayer. They were gasping and gaping and staring with wonder, unable to fully accept in their brains what they were seeing in front of them. You see, the scene that Luke paints for us starts out 
as a typical day in the life of this poor man that had been lame from birth. I want you to think about that for a few minutes. Lame from birth. This man is a little over 40 years old. We won't read that this morning, but you'll, you would find that out if you read all of chapter four. Over 40. And he has never walked a day in his life. He's unable to walk. At this point, after 40 years, I want you to think of the fact that the muscles in his legs have never even developed. His legs are thin and dangling, and he's carried by friends and family, no doubt, day after day, up to the temple gate to do the only thing that he knows to do to earn his way in the world, to ask help from compassionate people who are walking by. It's, it's a very strategic plan, really. You see, many people would be passing by on their way into the temple for the evening time of prayer and sacrifice. Luke says in verse 1 that it was the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. That means nine hours after sunrise, or roughly three o'clock in the afternoon by our reckoning. The time of the morning prayer was around 9 a.m. or the third hour of the day. Remember the previous chapter when Peter is preaching his sermon, he tells the people standing there uh, that it is the third hour of the day. That would have been the time that everybody's coming up into the temple for the morning time of prayer. And traffic, the traffic is heaviest at morning and evening prayer times because people are coming into the temple to pray and some of them are coming to offer their sacrifices. Now, we're not 100% certain where the gate called beautiful is located. There is no beautiful gate mentioned in any rabbinical literature or Jewish literature outside of the Bible. And the names of these gates change throughout the years. Many people believe that this is the site of the entrance that Peter and John we're talking about here the, the set of gates that led up to the south side of the Temple Mount around the corner from the western wall. If you take a left there and keep going, you'd find the western wall, what we call the Wailing Wall that is still standing. This particular gate is called the Triple Gate for obvious reasons. The gates were walled up in the 11th century by the Muslims when they were trying to defend the city against the Crusaders, and they've never been reopened. But if, if this is not the actual site of the beautiful gate, it's at least very close, and it's similar to what would have been going on here, which is why I'm showing it to you. Just to give you a perspective, there is a long stairway leading up to the mountainside upon which the temple would sit. And of course, that's not the temple. That's just a retaining wall, and you would go inside there and go up some ramps up to the temple courtyard, and the temple would be standing inside of there. And those are the gates, by the way, right there, if you can't see them on the screen. The stairway was actually reconstructed more recently from the actual stones that were found that dated back to the first century. And as you turn and look back from these gates, this is what you see. You see the Kidron Valley and the site of the original city of David. And to the left, you see the Mount of Olives. So you can see that they had quite a climb to get up to the gate. And they would carry this poor lame man up the steps nearly every day and set him at the entrance where people would have to see him when they pass by. And the people were going to pray, right? So they're already sort of in a spiritual frame of mind. So it's hard to ignore somebody sitting there asking for just a little bit of money when they're going to do something spiritual anyway. It's not unlike you or I walking into a grocery store during the Christmas season and passing the Salvation Army bell ringers, reminding you to put some change in the kettle, right? You're, you're likely going in to buy extra commodities for Christmas gatherings and making holidays special. And, you know, you feel like Ebenezer Scrooge if you don't put something in. So they know exactly where, where to place those bell ringers. But you watch a lot of people going by, maybe nodding, 
putting some change in, going to the store, going along their business. And, and the people who are standing there uh, asking about uh, you know, giving money, they're sort of invisible. You know what I mean? Like you, they, people rarely just engage and start talking to the people. They're just there to ring the bell. And it would be the same here. People randomly give to this man and they recognize him. They, they have to see him all the time, but he's invisible to them at the same time. He's so needy. No one has the time or the resources or the ability to help him. They don't have the money to support him. There are obviously no doctors who can heal him. And then there's the matter of self-reputation. I mean, the man is a beggar, so he's an outcast in that society, someone of no account, someone who would actually make their worship experience of the temple a little nicer if he weren't sitting there every time that they came up to pray, someone that they might be ashamed to be associated with. That's who he is. But it's even worse, I think, for this man. Why do you think he's laid outside the gate? Why not in the inside? Because actually he is not allowed into the temple by Jewish law because he's lame. He is legally prohibited in in the first century rabbinical teachings of entering into the temple. This prohibition goes all the way back to the proclamation of David in 2 Samuel 5, who said, the lame and the blind shall not come into this house. And of course, he wasn't talking about the temple at that point, but the rabbis took that proclamation and applied it to the temple to anybody with any disability. So in other words, this man cannot enter the house of God. He can't go in and pray with the others. He cannot come closer to the holy place. So in every way you can imagine, this man is marginalized in the culture. The people are passing by, maybe recognizing him, but he's there so often they see him, but they don't see him. And for multiple reasons, they do not engage. But on this occasion, Peter does something that probably most people had never done to this man. He engages. He directs his gaze at him. And verse four says, he said, look at us. Because Peter had something to offer this man more remarkable than anything he could have imagined. That is why he says in verse 6, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. When Peter raised up this man, it says that immediately, His feet and ankles were made strong. There was muscle where before there had been atrophy. There was capability where there had been inability. And we have to imagine how astounding this must have been. The man immediately leaps up. That means that he not only has a new ability to walk, but he can jump into the air and land. You didn't learn to do that until a while after you'd learned to stand and walk. It takes some balance. It takes some dexterity. And the man is so excited and so grateful. He begins to walk with Peter and John to the gate, heading into the temple. This is likely the first time he has ever been inside. And he is leaping and testing his new strength. And I imagine even running ahead a little bit and running back and, and, and using his legs. And they make their way through the inner interior ramps up into the temple courtyard. Think about the fact that before he is healed, this man has no strength. He has no balance. He has never walked. I'm guessing most of us were so young when we took our first steps that we don't remember the experience of learning to walk. What it's like to balance yourself on one leg as you lift the other to move forward. It's something you have to learn. You have to train your equilibrium. 
And this man was completely healed immediately, even with the equilibrium. This man has the sudden and wonderful experience with his legs so he can even jump in the air and land without losing his balance. It's part of the miracle. And he's not silent about it. As he walks and leaps with Peter and John, he's praising God. Verse 8 says, and he's praising God for the first time in the temple court, the place of praise, the house of praise. And people began to stare and to point because they recognized this man for years who had sat outside the gate. Some of them were thinking probably, I should have been nicer to that guy, you know, because now he's going to be around. I'm going to have to look at him and, 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 and talk to him. And, and they, they had never been able to help him. And a crowd began to form around them, watching this man, listening to him tell his story in utter amazement. In fact, verse 11 says that while the man clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico, a little porch area with columns called Solomon's portico. And whatever they were saying, Peter knew that he and John were being applauded for this miracle. And he knew that there was nothing, nothing that those two men could have done in and of themselves to heal this man. Because this man's problem was beyond any human capability to help. He had entered the world with his legs that were useless. He, they, were, they were as good as dead. And he was hobbling through life as best he could through the generosity of others because of the deadness of his leg, uh, suffering, want, and shame. And he needed to be brought from deadness to life. This man had been transformed not by human agency, but through the power of the resurrected Jesus. This is why Peter rightly deflects all of the praise and all of the accolades to the only place that they are deserved. Peter had healed this man in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And Peter's going to make sure everybody knows it. So verse 12 says that when Peter saw the crowd all looking at them, he said to them this, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy One, the Holy and Righteous One, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now, if we continue to read the story, Peter keeps preaching the gospel to them as the crowd forms the gospel of the crucified and risen Jesus. And at the beginning of chapter four, we're going to turn there now, the temple authorities came to arrest them, particularly because they were proclaiming the resurrection. So they locked up Peter and John, and because it was late in the day, they decided to deal with them the next morning. So I'm going to pick up the reading in Acts chapter four, starting in verse five. Luke writes this, On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the, the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high 
priestly family. You should recognize some of those names. And this is so ironic. These are the guys who probably maybe 60 days earlier, because you have to have 50 days before Pentecost after the Passover, maybe about 60 days earlier, uh, not long, long, not much more than that. These are the guys that held the trial for Jesus to condemn him. The trial that took place in Caiaphas's house. Caiaphas is there. And it was his house that the trial took place. They thought they had taken Jesus out of the way and had him killed. But then there are all these rumors swirling around Jerusalem that he's been seen very much alive. And now his disciples are here and they're performing a miracle that is very similar to the kind of miracles that Jesus did all the time. And they're very frustrated because Peter and John are saying, Jesus did this. I mean, what do you do with someone you try to kill, but he won't stay dead? So they're going to get to the bottom of this. Verse 7 says, when they had set them in the midst, uh, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? And Peter explains to them boldly and passionately and with great confidence what he had already proclaimed the day before. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, and this was personal now. So these are the very guys who led the mob to crucify him. This is intense. You crucified him, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, there are a lot of themes playing throughout this marvelous story if you read all of chapter 3 and chapter 4. But if there's one thing, theme that comes out that should ring loudly and clearly, it is this. This lame man was brought into full health, body, soul, and spirit because of the power of one man, Jesus of Nazareth, who was raised from the dead. It wasn't Peter or John who performed this miracle. It was the resurrected Jesus working through his apostles, his representatives. And this is not a one-off. If you keep reading through Acts, Jesus is active all the time, continuing to add to his church, continuing to do these amazing things through the men that he had called to represent him. So why did the Lord desire this miracle to be seen by all the Jewish people coming to the temple to pray? At one of the busiest times of the day, I think it's because the Lord wanted everyone to know that he is still very much alive and that he is able to transform those who put their faith in his name. He wanted a visible, undeniable illustration for all to see that what he did for this poor, crippled man physically on the outside, he will also do for everyone spiritually on the inside. And Jesus has this power because of his resurrection from the dead. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul said about this? He said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. 
and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. The power of his resurrection. What is the power of Jesus's resurrection? It's the power of Jesus to radically transform, to change from the inside out, one who embraces him by faith. It's the power to take our relationship of enmity with God and transform it into love for God. It's the power to transform our darkness into light. It's the power to transform our death into life, making the dead live And that transforming work, that radical change ought to be visible in our lives now. And it ought to give us great hope and encouragement as we look for our risen Lord to return. Now, you might have picked up on the fact that the name of Jesus is mentioned several times in this passage. In fact, Peter says in chapter 3, verse 6, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he says in 3.16, And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong. And the rulers of the temple in chapter 4 demand, by what power or by what name do you do this? And Peter again declares in 4.10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, God raised up from the dead. And in chapter 4, verse 12, there is no salvation in anyone else because there is no other name under heaven given among men. That's not an accidental thing. It's not just a, a scribal tendency here to use the word name. The name of the person, and this, was, this, this is true today, and we could illustrate it if we had time, but it's, it's very much true in the first century where they didn't have papers they carried around to sort of speak for them. They had to travel in other people's names. Names had authority. They had meaning. And the name of the person was not just a simple title or label or means of identification. The name represented the person behind the name. So what Peter did here in taking the lame man uh, and, and causing him to rise is that he told him to rise and walk in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He was saying, by the authority of that name, by the power that name represents, by the promises that name stands for. That's why the temple authorities ask there in chapter 4, verse 7, by what power or by what name do you do this? The, name, the, the understanding of power and name is, is simultaneous there. It's why, by the way, Jesus taught us to pray to the Father in his name. It means when we approach God's, God's throne in prayer, in the name of Jesus, we have the confidence to be there because we come by the authority, by the promises of Jesus. Well, notice that there are three, at least three specific names that Peter calls Jesus in the space of a few verses in chapter three, which is where we're going to focus for just a few more minutes here this morning. These names for Jesus in chapter three, in just the space of a few verses speak eloquently of his resurrection power. It is because of the power of this name through the resurrection that Jesus transforms us who believe and continues to grow and change us. What are these three names that I'm going to call attention to? Well, there's one in verse 13, there's one in verse 14, and there's one in verse 15 in chapter 3. The first is this, Peter refers to Jesus as, and I'm going to translate it this way this morning, the servant son, the servant son. And it shows us that the name of Jesus 
can take us from being an enemy of God to a loving child of God. Because Peter says in verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus. Now, why am I translating this word that you see in servant if you're using the NASB or the ESB this morning? Why am I translating that servant son? Because this is not the normal word for servant that some of you might be thinking about. There's always people here who are studying Greek who are fact-checking me with their Greek New Testaments as I preach. I'm aware of this. And uh, some of you were searching for the word doulos in the text. You're not going to find it there. This is not the word doulos that's translated servant. It's the word pais. It's much rarer. It can refer to a servant, but it can also refer to a son, a young boy, in fact. The King James translation, by the way, reads, the God of our fathers glorified his son, Jesus. They chose son. And in fact, I was interested to discover that the Amplified Bible has it, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant and son, Jesus. They couldn't make up their minds, so they just used both (laughs) translations. Now, this is an unusual word for servant to be used of Jesus. In fact, with one exception that I'll mention in a second, outside these two chapters in Acts, you will not find this word for servant used to refer to Jesus anywhere in the New Testament. It's, It's all right here except for one exception. It's like calling Jesus the father's boy. But the word boy in this context also implies two essential ideas. First, it implies that the boy is under authority. That's why the word is, is used, can be used for a servant, a young servant, a servant who is still a child. Like little Samuel in the temple, he would have been a pice in the Old Testament. Jesus said in the Gospels that he came to serve the Father and to give his life for us according to the Father's will. He was always under the Father's authority, trusting in the Father's will, trusting the Father to raise him. But the word implies another essential idea. It implies affection, a close relationship. In fact, when used of Jesus, it makes sense to think of pice as a term of endearment. Jesus is the Father's dear, obedient Son. The exception I mentioned is in Matthew chapter 12 where this word is used. And this is wonderful. Matthew says that the ministry of Jesus was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is pleased. The word servant here is the word pice. And he couples this with the word beloved, identifying the loving relationship that the father shares with the son. So what is this name that radically transforms us when we place our faith in the risen Jesus? It is a name that speaks of love and devotion and obedience. We were created to know God and love God and serve God. That's why God created the human race. But because of the fall, we tend to go in the opposite direction. In fact, Paul says in Romans 3, nobody even seeks after God. We all go out of the way, loving and serving ourselves so that we are not the affectionate children of God. We are actually, the New Testament says, the enemies of God. That's what Paul calls us in Romans 5 and Colossians 1. Whether we realize it or not, we are unwittingly the enemies of God awaiting for God's wrath. But when we place our faith in the name of the risen Jesus, the power of the resurrection through the Spirit transforms us from an enemy of God to a loving child of God. 
and one who is deeply loved by the Father. In fact, in John 15, uh, in, in Jesus' discussion with his disciples, we learn that the, the same love that God has for his own son, he has for us as well. That is remarkable to think of. It's scarcely believable. And we don't really have time this morning to go into how this all works exactly, but the dynamic of this transformation, and this is very important, the dynamic of this transformation is made plain in passages such as Romans chapter 6. This is where Paul explains that when we trust in the death of Christ for our sins and his resurrection, the Father unites us with the Son so that what is true of the Son is now true of us. To put it briefly, the death of Jesus is our death. The resurrection of Jesus is our resurrection. And his new life is our new resurrection life. So as Jesus lives in obedience to the Father and loves the Father, so the believer has this new desire born within him, being united with the Son to love the Father and to walk with God and to serve him just like Jesus illustrates for us in the Gospels. Because Jesus is the risen servant Son. But there's a second name for Jesus that Peter uses in chapter 3. And it's in verse 13. Peter proclaims to his fellow Jews, you denied the holy and righteous one. If the name of the risen Jesus, the servant son, transforms us from being an enemy of God to a loving child of God, then Jesus, the holy and righteous one, transforms us from a child of darkness to a child of light. And I'm using this terminology of darkness and light because darkness in the New Testament is a metaphor for sin. And light is a picture of a godly life, a life of holiness, a life of doing what is right before God. And of course, Jesus was holy, absolutely. He was without sin, absolutely. And he was perfectly righteous, which means he always fully obeyed the Father's will. And there are two ways that the holy, righteous life of the risen Jesus transforms those who walk in the light rather in the darkness. The first, of course, is by changing our position before the Father, before the throne of God above. We sang that earlier today. How do we stand before the Father? Not in any way that we have manufactured for ourselves, not in any way that we've invented. We stand because of what Jesus Christ has done to change us so that when the Father looks upon us, he does not see us as wretchedly sinful, but he sees us as perfectly righteous in his beloved Son. It's the best deal in human history. Jesus takes all our sin and we get all his righteousness. And this transaction, which we call our justification, that's the theological term for it, that's the biblical term for it, is made possible because of the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 24, that Jesus was delivered up for our transgressions and he was raised for our justification. But there's a second way that the risen Jesus, the holy righteous one, transforms us into children of light rather than children of darkness. He empowers us to live a righteous life, to act out what I already am positionally in the sight of God. You know what this means? It means that we don't have to sin anymore. It means that when we are tempted to sin, we can say no. We don't always say no, but we can it means that when we are tempted to sin, we can say no. It means we, can, we, we do not have to feel defeated or discouraged in our walk with the Lord that nothing can go right because we are right with God and we can live righteously for God 
because of what Jesus Christ has done, because of what the risen Jesus has done. Through faith in his name, the servant son transforms us from a life of sin to a life of righteousness and holiness and faithfulness. So now we move from enmity to love, from darkness to light. And finally, I want to call attention to the name that is in chapter 3, verse 15, where Peter proclaims to the Jews, you killed the author of life. There's another name for Jesus in this text. The author of life, which is really ironic. You murdered because you're murderers. The very author of life. And what we find is that through the resurrection of Jesus, those who place their faith in him are transferred from death into life. My pastor in Minnesota always liked to say, we, we come into the world DOA, dead on arrival. And Paul describes it really the same way. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, that we come into this world dead in our trespasses and sins. You can't think of a worse word to describe it. Dead means you're gone. There's nothing left. There's no life whatsoever. And you start out that way. So where's the hope? Where's anything to trust in? But when we are united with the resurrected Jesus, his new life becomes our new life. Do you realize that if you know Jesus Christ this morning, you are not going to receive eternal life someday. You already have eternal life right now because you're in Christ. And this eternal life is not because God simply gave us an ability to live forever when we got saved. It's much more amazing than that. We live forever because the risen Jesus lives forever and we are united with him. We cannot die because he can never die. In fact, for referring to Romans 6, verse 9 says, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And guess what? It no longer has dominion over us either because we are in him. We have been placed in him, in this name, the author of life. So that what is true of him is true of us. Because Jesus never dies again. Neither shall we who are in him ever die. We have been raised with him to a newness of life and that we will celebrate for all eternity. And that's why Paul goes on in Ephesians 2, as you know, to say, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins made us alive together with Christ. That's in Christ, union with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him in him and seated us with him in him. And the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, it's a, a really, it's a mystery to think about, but Paul envisions the believer already seated with Christ in the heavenly place. It's like we're there already, enjoying eternal life with him. The crippled man lame from birth, whom Jesus healed through his apostles, is an excellent reminder for us of the complete and utter change that has taken place in our lives when we placed our faith in the risen Lord Jesus. In the society in which this lame man lived, he had no life, really. No access to the temple, no hope. And then he was raised up you caught that, right? That Peter says that, that, that Luke says Peter took him by the hand and raised him up. But he was raised up more than physically. He was raised up to walk in new life, walking and leaping and praising God. Do you realize what this crippled man became? He became living evidence for the Jewish crowd gathered in the temple 
and for the unbelieving temple authorities that Jesus is alive. He was evidence of the resurrection. And you know, that's what we are also. If you've placed your faith in the death of Christ for your sins and his resurrection, you ought to live as living proof that Jesus is alive. He should be alive in your love for God. He should be alive in your obedience for God, alive in your hope for the future. Now, you might be thinking, I don't know, you might be thinking, one or two of you here or more, you know, all this talk about living, resurrected Jesus and new life and so forth, honestly, that's not been my experience. I I don't know what this is about. Well, maybe you have never truly turned from your sin to embrace Jesus Christ by faith. And if that is the case, I would urge you to turn to the Lord and know this new life. I would love to take the scripture and sit down with you and just show you what the Bible says about how to know Jesus Christ and to know that you are with him for eternity and, and, and about trusting in the death of Jesus Christ for your sins and his resurrection. And many others here would say the same thing to you. They would love to take the scriptures and show you. But for those of us who truly know the Lord, let's continue to live today and tomorrow and the next day. And as time goes on and we forget to think about the resurrection as much as we're thinking about it today, which we shouldn't, but sometimes that happens. If Jesus is truly alive, let's continue to live as if that transforming power of his resurrection has truly changed us through our faith and obedience to the Lord. Let his resurrection power shine forth in your love for him and your love for others, in the faithfulness that you have to walk with him in holiness and in your hope and confidence that we will live with him forever. Praise God for the resurrection. Praise the Lord Jesus Christ, that he has made us those trophies, those, those evidences of his resurrection. Let's live our lives as if Jesus Christ lives. Father.